Let's pray as we come to God's word. Lord Jesus, we turn to you and to uh, your authority uh, when discussing this subject of false teaching and our need to uh, turn to you in the midst of this danger. But I pray that you would uh, give me the words to say, but also give us all the hearts to listen, that we may not just have head knowledge, but rather turn to you, Lord Jesus, by faith and trust in you. And I pray you take away the distractions we might have this morning. We might find all of our hope in Jesus. Amen. Well, as I, I mentioned as I was uh, praying as we're looking at this text, uh, we're going to look at the subject of false teaching. Uh, we've been working our way through the book of Matthew uh, and uh, taking it chunk by chunk, uh, as we've been doing uh, for some time now. And as we've been following Jesus on this journey, as he's teaching his disciples and also having interactions with uh, these groups of religious leaders in his time in the first century, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, we now come to a particular interaction that Jesus tells us to be wary of their teaching, their false teaching. And I've had three illustrations come to me in the last 24 hours on the dangers of false teaching. The first one is I was heading out the door this morning and there was smoke in my area. I could smell it and then I could see it. As I was driving, of course, when they say there's smoke, there's fire. Now, I did check and there was a small bushfire and it was put out. But, of course, two weeks ago, there was a big, or three weeks ago, there was a big bushfire. Uh, and we had the car packed, ready to go. Because if the wind changed, then things were going to look very, very dangerous. And so, you must be warned if you see a sign that something dangerous is there, you must act upon it. Similarly with false teaching, if you smell it, it's probably there. The second uh, illustration was the pants I put on first this morning. And as you put on your pants, sometimes you hear a rip sound. <laughs> and you need to be very careful when that happens and not as I did think it'll be fine. Because <laughs> lo and behold, sometimes you get up in front of people and have to talk and your pants rip as you stand up and get on the stage. And that didn't happen this morning because I asked my wife, what should I do? And she said, change your pants. It's not worth it. And so I listened to her advice. Thank you. But again, the warning. And I had to act on it. And if I didn't, what could have happened? Shame and embarrassment. Third example is of a mouse in the house. So we have cats. And of course, you would think that mice wouldn't come into a house with cats. It's kind of like entering the lion's den willingly. But one of our cats decided to bring one in to play with it. I got up in the middle of the night, tried to get rid of the mouse. Anyway, it ended up getting lost. And then it appeared from under our fridge a couple of weeks later. And I thought, uh-oh, mouse in the house. I felt sorry for the mouse, actually, because I figured, you know, you've got cats just prowling around, licking their lips, waiting to eat it. And I decided, well, I'm going to set some mouse traps because I don't want a mouse cruising around. So bad ideas for hygiene and everything else. So I set the traps. But this mouse was quite crafty. Quite crafty. It managed to get the food off the trap without setting off the trap. 
Isn't that frustrating? You said go to all this effort, and I thought I'll put some better bait on there that kind of sticks more to the, the trap. Of course, that didn't work. You know, this mouse can eat peanut butter off a trap and not get caught. Amazing little thing. But beware, mouse, because the traps are still set in there. And I heard a snap underneath where the bin sits in the cupboard at about 6pm last night, and we knew what it was, and that mouse was trapped and dead. So beware of false teaching, because it is a trap, and if you follow it, it will kill you in the end. I hope that's helpful for you. As we come to this text, uh, I want to, just before I sort of get into the, the bulk of teaching, uh, and as we're thinking about the importance of this, I just want to spend a bit of time giving us a bit of context to two groups that are introduced to us in verse 1. So you see in your Bibles, uh, Matthew 16, verse 1, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Jesus. The Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Jesus and they're there to accuse him. They don't like Jesus, they're threatened by him. They kind of sit on different ends of the spectrum, I guess. It's as if the Pentecostals and the Independent Baptists made an alliance and then went out to do something together. It's very unlikely, as you can imagine, if you know those two groups well. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees decide to make an alliance because they are both threatened by Jesus. And the Pharisees are on one end of the spectrum. They're what we call superstitious. They're superstitious or super spiritual might be another way of saying it. They go to the nth degree to be holy. That is, they will follow every uh, part of the law and the traditions that they've been given to kind of keep the law even in check so that they will be perceived by the religious community around them to be a holy people. They would even go to the uh, tithe of their spice rack. Literally, they would take 10% out of their spices and give them as an offering to God. They would go to the nth degree to be holy. They're always looking for supernatural signs. They're on the lookout for a prophet, although we notice that with Jesus, they don't tend to believe the signs when they see them. We'll get to that later. And they did believe in angels. They were looking for spirit beings, other spirits, and of course, the resurrection from the dead, which we know that Jesus fulfilled. They were traditionally quite working class and not very well educated, but had some education, religious education, and they were quite fundamentalist and very conservative. So that's the Pharisees group. The Sadducees, on the other hand, are a bit different. So the Sadducees were quite materialistic. They were less concerned about spiritual things and they saw the law as a means to an end for them. And they actually had the religious power. Most of them were priests, or many of them were priests, and they took made up the majority of the priestly group. Uh, They were genuinely, uh, generally quite well educated and upper class and quite liberal in their beliefs. So whereas the Pharisees believed in the resurrection and spirits and angels, the Sadducees didn't believe in any of those. They didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. They didn't believe in spirits, either demons or angels or anything like that. So we've got one group on this side which are super spiritual or superstitious and on the other side we've got the Sadducees which are substitious that is they are very materialistic they don't believe in spiritual things that much so it's very unusual that these two groups would be together to challenge Jesus but here they are and Jesus 
would have us know that both of these groups are wrong. That is, being superstitious and trying to make everything into having a spiritual meaning behind it when you don't actually know the true intent of God's law and God's love for you. Neither is the materialist view, that nothing is spiritual and we just have to work it out on our own. Both views are wrong. Jesus has a different path, and that's what we're going to find out today. So that's a bit of background for you as we come into understanding the text. I've rearranged my order for you this morning. So point one will be the signs of false teaching. Point two will be deliverance from false teaching. And point three will be protection from false teaching. So signs, deliverance, protection from false teaching. Let's start with point one. So what we see in the signs of, point, uh, of false teaching, there's several of them, and we see them in the first part of the text in verses 1 to 4. And the first sign of false teaching is testing Jesus by looking for immediate signs. Testing Jesus by looking for immediate signs. Have you ever thought this? Have you ever thought this? If only God would do something now, and you kind of Click your fingers as you do it, as if by you saying that, that God would do something fantastical in the sky to give you absolute assurance that he is there. And that is almost exactly what the Pharisees and Sadducees were doing to Jesus. They said to him, second part of verse 16, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. That is that perhaps Jesus' miracles so far that they've heard about aren't good enough. They want a bigger one. They want a bigger sign. And Jesus will give them one, but they won't expect how it comes. So they're testing Jesus by looking for immediate signs. And this is a sign of false teaching. Why? Because it teaches Jesus like he's a magician, that he's just there for cheap tricks, that he's like a genie that can do stuff on command. Saying to Jesus, show us some signs now, as if you're the judge of him. You're trying to judge whether he's true and correct or not, and for he needs to prove himself to you. Now, logically, if Jesus is who he is, that is, God, creator of heaven and earth, Lord of all, shouldn't you need to prove yourself to him? Not him prove himself to you? Their demand of Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees' demand of Jesus, is not of their office. They are not the judge. Jesus will, in fact, be the judge. And so they cannot expect it to be granted. This also speaks to the attitude that the Pharisees and the Sadducees have towards Jesus. They are without humility and patience. The Bible says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That is, if you approach Jesus, like, prove yourself to me, with a judgmental attitude of him, I don't think our heart would even believe it, even if we showed, he showed us a sign. These words that the Pharisees and the Sadducees bring to Jesus actually condemn them. They say, show us a sign from heaven, that they don't realise that Jesus is the sign, capital T, capital S, the sign 
from heaven who has come to them and they have condemned themselves by their words. So you can imagine that there's kind of the Pharisees are looking for a bigger sign because they're looking for signs all the time and they're super spiritual. The Sadducees are trying to prove Jesus wrong because they don't believe in signs anyway and they're just trying to you know, get the most out of being religious in their society. But we do find that people are a little bit like this today. Perhaps more on the superstitious side, even in church circles. That is, constantly chasing for signs and wonders. You might have heard that expression before, signs and wonders. There's a problem with that though. If your faith is built on chasing God doing signs and wonders for you. Firstly, it's a little bit illogical. Let's say you go on a trip and you're seeing signs directing you to a different city. And when you arrive in that city, you don't need the signs anymore because you've arrived. You've got to your destination. That is the point of signs, that they would take you to a destination. And so it doesn't really make sense logically to keep looking for more and more signs when you have arrived at faith in Jesus. You're missing the point if you're chasing after those. I would also caution you of ch about chasing after signs and wonders, though they do occur, but I would caution you because you will get utterly discouraged when you don't see the thing that you're looking for time and time again. I don't know if you're very, a spiritual person, but I doubt that you've seen that many miracles in your life. That's the point. They're supposed to be rare. They're supposed to point us to Jesus. They're perhaps not an everyday occurrence. And for, for some people, even if they saw them every day, it wouldn't be enough. And I guess finally, and this is really important when it comes to this idea of false teaching and looking for immediate signs, is that we can treat Jesus like a cheap magician. Someone who just does cheap tricks. And I've heard this one, and I've got to speak about it because it really frustrates me. There seems to be this epidemic in certain circles of one, uh, people having one leg longer than the other. I don't know, you might have heard about this before. And so certain religious people professing to have a gift of healing will come to you and, say, and sit down in a chair and examine your feet. Well, so it seems to me that you're one leg is longer than the other, having no medical experience whatsoever. And they assume to adjust the length of your leg through prayer. Now, let me just say that God can heal you through prayer. We see it in the Bible. I've seen it in real life. Many of you have experienced it and also prayed for it. But the problem with this is that it is used as a cheap trick and often falsified. And you see it, and there was a, there's a movie, documentary about this, by some Christians trying to expose this, uh, this heresy, really. And what they do is they slip the shoe as they pray to seem like the feet have evened up. A terrible thing. So if you encounter people telling you that one leg is longer than the other, say, so I'll see the doctor first about that, and then maybe you'll pray about it. One of the problems with that, with that kind of teaching is that people will only focus on, these 
conjurers of cheap tricks will only focus on people who have not easily verifiable illnesses. You know, I've, I've heard of uh, quite frequently people coming with serious chronic illness, coming to be healed, and they have not been healed. In fact, the people will push them away from the stage because they're afraid of being caught out because their healing powers are, in fact, cheap tricks and nonsense. Excuse my digression, but that annoys me. All right, let's keep going. Second sign of false teaching, inconsistency in logic. So we see this uh, in verses 2 and 3. You might have heard the saying, red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning, sailor's warning. That's essentially what the text says here. The idea is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees can obviously interpret the weather. You know, they can see that if there's a red sky in the evening, then it's probably you know, going to be a good day the next day. If the red sky in the morning, there might well be a storm. And of course, there's a um, metaphor is used for shepherds as well, if you're familiar uh, with that. The issue is they're inconsistent in their logic. They can tell what's going to happen from the weather, but they cannot see that Jesus has been doing these incredible and miraculous signs, and yet they still don't recognize that their Messiah has come. They don't recognize the Son of God has arrived and they have to do something and respond to him. And not responding to him is ignoring him and actually inviting his judgment upon them. They're inconsistent in their logic. And this really comes together, I think, in verses uh, 2 and 3 with the weather analogy. But it also reminds us that we can also be inconsistent with our logic when it comes to Jesus. We can be inconsistent in our logic when it comes to Jesus. For example, we believe in history. That is, most of us would believe in historical records and the generally agreed upon history of the world. Someone like Julius Caesar, for example, that would know who is one of the most famous emperors of Rome. But did you know that there is more historical evidence for Jesus than there is for Julius Caesar? And yet many people will hold them in different categories and say, well, you know, one is false and one is true, but they're inconsistent in their logic. Historians, almost every credible historian at a university, this is professors of history, would all agree that Jesus is a true figure of history and very well attested, very, very well attested. Secondly, generally in our society, we believe in real evaluation of evidence. That is, we always talk about getting the facts, getting the figures, and then making decisions based upon those facts and figures. You might be frustrated with that if you sort of work in the government or something, because you always need a factor or figure or some study to prove your point before you act upon it. And yet, what we see in these scriptures, in these gospels, is uh, accounts over and over again, eyewitness accounts, verified accounts of miracles that Jesus is doing, things that are well beyond natural human experience. They're truly supernatural, and yet we're not willing to make conclusions based upon the evidence, based upon the data, and to say, well, if Jesus can heal someone who's been born blind and, say you're, and to say incredible things, and it's verified by many eyewitnesses, then perhaps it is indeed true. And the other thing that we 
have as a bit of an inconsistency is we believe in making logical assertions. That is, uh, A plus B equals AB. For example, if you're into algebra. We believe that 1 plus 2 equals 3. It's interesting about Jesus, and this, this idea of a logical deduction has been used about the life of Jesus. Many people will say that Jesus is a, a good teacher, a good person. If, if you believe in him historically, you might dismiss the miracles, but you agree that he's a good teacher of good morals and a good person, because really it's hard to argue that he isn't. But C.S. Lewis uh, brings this proposition to us, it's called the trilemma, that Jesus is either a liar a lunatic, or he is in fact Lord. That is, you can't say the sorts of things that Jesus said and just say, well, he's a good teacher because Jesus said, I'm the son of God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. He's making an exclusive claim, no other religion, no other belief system, nothing that you have in your head will get you to heaven except for Jesus. And faith in him alone. So he can't, he can't be a good teacher, he can't be a good person, and then you disregard his teaching. Maybe he's crazy. That, that could be another alternative. Although, again, the scriptures would testify against that. All the evidence would testify that Jesus is of sound mind, in fact, so wise that when people tried to argue against him, they had nothing to say, they had no words, nothing came out. Because he is so wise in the way that he speaks. And of course, that leaves us then with one option, that he is in fact Lord and the Bible tells the truth and that you owe him your allegiance. One of the problems with false teachers though and false teaching is that it's very inconsistent in its logic. Third point, third sign of false teaching blindly participating in the sins of our generation. So Jesus points this out in verse 4. He says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to them except the sign of Jonah. Everyone acts like this all the time. This whole world is just going to and fro, tossed up and down like a little boat out in the middle of the ocean, going up and down on the waves. The wind just carries it wherever it wants to. They're changing their beliefs all the time. This, and so Jesus points to and calls this generation evil because of their unbelief. But he says something interesting about them. He says they're adulterous. Adulterous. That is, they've committed the sin of adultery against their true God. And Jesus makes a particular accusation against the religious groups the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and says, you have committed adultery against your God. You have not followed him. You have been consumed by yourselves and religious pride and have not humbled yourselves under the mighty hand of God and believed in the true son, the true sign, Jesus himself. They seek signs as a diversion tactic because they feel threatened by Jesus. And so what is the result? We see this at the end of verse 4 that they are abandoned by Jesus. It says it quite starkly, so he left them and departed. That is, he calls out their sin, he calls out their false teaching, and then he leaves them. 
They've been judged by their words. Their logic has been a witness against them or their lack of logic. And they have chosen the side of an evil and adulterous generation. Let me illustrate this for you in two ways. Firstly, uh, there's a guy, uh, a quite an amazing man, uh, born in New Zealand, but did much of his work in Australia. His name is Fred Hollows. He's an ophthalmologist. And he dedicated his life to making people see. Did a lot of cataract surgery. You might have been a beneficiary of the amazing research and the work that he did. There are estimates that he enabled over one million people through his work and research to see clearly. Can you imagine if you were blind and Fred Hollows came to you and said, I can make you see you like, no thanks. I'm fine blind. I'll just carry on. Imagine you never seen before. Imagine you were born blind by a condition that he could heal, that he could fix through his medical training and expertise. And he offers you sight and you say, no thanks. That is as if what the Pharisees are doing. They're choosing blindness. And that is why Jesus will leave them because you cannot heal a person who does not want to be healed. If they refuse it, It shows that on the inside, their hearts are hard and they will not receive it. My second illustration for you is from a French philosopher called Voltaire. And he famously said this, he's an atheist, he said this, Even if a miracle should be wrought in the open marketplace before a thousand sober witnesses, I would rather mistrust my senses than admit a miracle. He'd rather mistrust his senses than admit a miracle in front of a thousand people. What does that prove? There's something deeper is going on. It's not just that you're looking for signs and God hasn't shown you enough signs, or you're perhaps inconsistent in your logic, or you're just participating in what everyone else is doing in the rest of society. The issue is that the heart is hard towards God. There is an unbelief there. That's a sign that you've been absorbed by the false teaching of the world, is that you don't want to believe it anyway. There's a problem deep down, and Voltaire shows this very well. Although he did feel a bit of tension on his deathbed. They say that Voltaire had his Christian friends witnessing to him, telling him that there's hope as he was dying, that if he believes in Jesus, Jesus would forgive him of his sin, that Jesus would wipe the debts clean, that Jesus would give him eternal life just by faith, just by believing. And Voltaire would make these professions of faith and then he was so hard-hearted that it wouldn't stick for very long and he would turn back and tell his friends to go away, it's all their fault. And eventually, one of his last words were this, I die abandoned by God and man. You see, the condition that false teaching puts us in is a condition of the heart. It's a condition of unbelief. It's a condition that you bring upon yourself and without the intervention Without the intervention of a God who would love you enough to pluck you out of it, you will stay there. And you will be like Voltaire. And you will be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, abandoned. Because you chose the blindness when you were offered sight. Interestingly though, and I'll take me to our second point. So look at the signs of false teaching. I want to talk about deliverance from false teaching now. We see this in verse 4. Jesus doesn't give them a sign, but he points to history and he says, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. 
except the sign of Jonah. Now, I took my time to read through the book of Jonah to discern what sign Jesus was talking about. Of course, this is referred to earlier in Matthew's gospel, the sign of Jonah, when Jesus is speaking to others. But again, we see it here. Jesus is speaking to the sign of Jonah. And I think there's seven signs in Jonah, but there's a couple that the text would highlight for us. I'm going to go through these really quickly. The seven signs of Jonah that give us deliverance from false teaching. Firstly, we see in the book of Jonah that Jonah flees the presence of the Lord. In fact, he, though being a very religious person, runs away from God. But this points us to Jesus in a similar way because rather than Jonah running away from God, we see Jesus, the presence of God, running away from false teaching. You can't have those two together. You can't have false teaching and Jesus in the same place. Jesus is saying that if I'm here, if I'm God in the flesh and you're false teaching, you cannot be with me. You cannot be with me. That's the first sign. The second sign in the book of Jonah is Jonah receives the judgment of God by a fish. So if you know the story of Jonah, you will know that he runs away from God and he gets, uh, gets thrown off a boat and then he's eaten, consumed by this fish. And this is God judging him, but also it does seem protecting him. But in contrast, Jesus takes our judgment on a cross. Jesus is saying that you deserve judgment to the Pharisees from this sign of Jonah for your fleeing from the presence of God by, with your false teaching, removing yourself from him by him offering you sight and you choosing blindness. And yet Jesus himself would take the judgment of God himself on the cross. Thirdly, Jonah is thrown into the sea instead of the men in the boat drowning. So we find that in the book of Jonah, the people, the sailors who Jonah's with, when he's running away from God, he gets on a boat and he goes out into the ocean. He's trying to get as far away from God as possible. You can't really do that if God owns and everything and he's present everywhere. But he tries it anyway. And as he's running away, the men on the boat who aren't you know, Jewish people, they're not believers, they realize that Jonah's the problem. He's the reason there's this big storm and they're all going to die. And so Jonah decides, well, he said, well, you're going to have to throw me off the boat in order to survive, that he would take the punishment of God and save them from dying. And of course, this again points us to Jesus, that Jesus would pay for our sins in our place so that we would avert God's wrath. It's an interesting a comedian, his name is Cameron Bradford from Brooklyn in New York, put this on Twitter just recently. He said, just, just this one line, we should just pin all the debt in the world on one guy and then kill him. Not a Christian. We should just pin all the debt in the world on one guy and then kill him. Because, of course, all the debts would be cleared then. You can't you know, come to someone for debt if they're dead. This, of course, and he did not know this when he wrote it. This, of course, points to Jesus. That all the debt of sin that we owe would be pinned on him instead of us. And that Jesus would die for us and in our place so that we wouldn't be held accountable for those debts anymore. That we would be set free. Point 
Fourth sign in the book of Jonah. Jonah is in the belly of the whale for three days and nights. And of course, Jesus is in the grave until the third day. He's in the grave because he's taking the full judgment for sin. Number five, Jonah is spat out by the fish because God delivered him. And of course, Jesus is spat out from the grave because death could not hold him any longer. Point six, Jonah preached to Nineveh. So Jonah, this this reluctant prophet, disobedient prophet, he's called by God to do something, he goes the other way. He falls under the judgment of God, by the mercy of God, he's saved and delivered. He's spat out and he goes back on his job and his job was to preach. His job was to preach to this terrible city of Nineveh. They were God's enemies, probably more than anyone else at the time. They were the enemies of the Jewish people, probably more than anyone else at the time. They were up to terrible and despicable things, child sacrifice, everything. And the list goes down from there. And yet, God had called Jonah to preach to them that they would repent and find hope in the grace of God and live. So Jonah preached to Nineveh and they did repent And it says in the text in Jonah, from the king to the least person in the kingdom, even the animals. And God saw their repentance and relented from his judgment. Now this is one of the points I want to highlight for us that I think Jesus is referring to. Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, people that are opposed to God, all of them, now, they didn't, they didn't live with Jesus as king. They didn't live with God as their king. They were just running their lives their own way. All of them realized the times in which they lived, which is Jesus' indictment against the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They cannot interpret the signs of the times. When God sent his prophet to speak to them, they recognized the times in which they were in and they repented. And that would be Jesus' call to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that God is merciful and that people who have almost no knowledge of God, almost no knowledge of God whatsoever, when they hear of him, they will turn to him. And the same would be true for today. Jesus holds his teaching so, so uh, importantly in his hands The Bible is the very word of God. We should not misuse it. We should not misuse it at all. And it's so precious that it has the power as people come to believe in the one whom it points to, Jesus. It is so precious it has the power to pluck people out of blindness and give them life and sight and eternal life today. It is so precious and so powerful. But the people had to repent. They had to turn away from their sin. And this points to two things. It points to the need for believing people, which is probably most of you here, to turn away from any false teaching, to cling to Jesus, to come back to his word. We'll get more to this in a few minutes. And we enter into that path by repenting. Because the moral of the story when you get to the end of the book of Jonah, is that Jonah needed to repent. He'd called a whole city of people to repent, but they didn't even know God to begin with. Eventually they did. 
But he knew of God. He called him his God. It was his covenant God, and yet he was the one that needed to repent. He was filled with pride. He wasn't willing to share what he had with others. And of course, this points to Jesus. You see, Jesus gave himself for sinners. When the world would not repent and humble themselves, the king, the highest office of all, the king of kings, became the lowest of all, a slave of slaves, in order to save his people, crucified on a cross, paying the full and just judgment of God, so that through faith in him, we might be healed. The last and final sign in the book of Jonah is that Jonah was displeased that Israel's enemies received God's grace. In fact, the book really ends open-ended. It's really interesting. It almost ends with a question mark at the end of the book of Jonah. Jonah was displeased that God's enemies had repented and received God's grace. This points us in contrast to Jesus because Jesus is pleased to extend the grace of God to his enemies. Why? Because he loves those who don't love him. I want you to get that. That Jesus' sign here to the Pharisees and the Sadducees is extending the hand when they have rejected him. God is far more gracious, far more merciful than we would dare imagine. He loves you more than you love yourself. He loves you more than anyone else loves you in the whole world, even if you reject him your whole life. He still loves you. He'd still be willing to reach out the hand just like to Voltaire as his Christian friends were bringing him the gospel, the good news of hope, that he would extend that same hope and love to you as he would to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were right against him even to false teachers, Jesus would say, you can turn. But if you don't, you will have what you deserve. So the question for us, of course, is will we repent? Will we turn to Jesus? Will we find hope in his name? Will we find freedom in his grace? And finally, and I'm going to finish on this, as we've started, the signs of false teaching, deliverance from false teaching, and now protection from false teaching. We see this in verses 5 to 12. There's three points I want to give you on this protection from false teaching. Firstly, we must recognize and reject false teachings. Jesus says this in uh, verses 5 and 6, verse 6 in particular. He says, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So leaven, of course, is like an agent like yeast, which makes bread rise. It distorts the shape. It enlarges it. It changes it. It makes it different to what it was before. There's a chemical reaction that goes on inside when you put leaven in bread or yeast in bread. It's not flat, it's big. In the same way, Jesus is saying that if you add something to the true teaching of the Bible, then you distort it. You make it different from what it was. It becomes bad. It becomes bad bread as opposed to Jesus' good bread. So Jesus is saying, beware of it. And so we must recognize and reject false teaching. We must watch for false teaching. We must observe when it comes up. 
I was uh, a few years ago. A friend of mine was sort of an amateur rally driver, and he um, he he's got this had this hotted up Subaru WRX. There's a couple of people here who really appreciate that, and um, I was uh, I was a navigator. And I tell you, you've got to be on your toes if you're the navigator when someone is driving as fast as they can, illegally, through the Adelaide Hills. And if you miss a turn, well, they're going you know, to fall back. And I didn't know what I signed up for. So anyway, I'm like holding on to my seat like this and I'm trying to like, watch for the signs and tell them where to go. And in a very similar way, we must watch very carefully for the signs of false teaching. Because if we do not see it, we will go off course. If we're going hell for leather, as fast as we can in our lives, and we miss the sign of false teaching, we can go off course. A good example of this is no one, even all the false teachers in history, no one says, I want to be a false teacher when I grow up. Do they? Like, think about it. No one says, When I grow up, I want to teach something that's wrong. Of course they don't, but they take a few wrong turns. They miss the signs and they are way off track. They have a bad navigator. They need to go back. They need to turn back and they need to come back to Jesus because he is the one that keeps us on the right track. I think... As, as I've really thought through the essence of false teaching and the issue, the hard-heartedness, the issue of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I think it can be summarised, uh, well, can summarised in many uh, different ways, but one way that I think is very helpful, particularly at the moment, is having a teachable spirit. That will protect you from false teaching. Having a teachable spirit. That is, you're willing to come under the authority of the Bible. You're willing to learn. You're willing to grow. You are a humble person under God. That will protect you from false teaching. I'm not saying be gullible. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But I am saying that having a teachable spirit will protect you from false teaching. Okay. Second point. How are we protected from false teaching? We trust Jesus' authenticated power. So we see this in verses 7 to 10. You know, Jesus is actually getting frustrated with the disciples. Have you ever thought that Jesus gets frustrated with people? Well, here we can see it. In fact, he mentions it a few times, so we really capture the essence of Jesus' emotion at the time. But he points to some miracles that he's done just recently, and we've actually spoken on these in recent weeks. You know, the miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000 people from only a few loaves. And, of course, Jesus feeding 4,000 people in a remote area, again, from only a few loaves. These things point us to something really interesting. And then we covered this, like, a little bit last week. But if Jesus is with you, he will provide for you. If Jesus is with you, you can trust him. In fact, Jesus is the one you need to trust. You don't need to look at the problem that you have. You need to look at Jesus whose presence is with you. And so what will deliver you, what will protect you from false teaching is trusting Jesus' authenticated power. He has been proven to be able to provide for needs. He has been proven to be able to overcome enormous issues. And you must recognise his presence with you. I picked up a, um, 
a collection of coins when I went, did some traveling. I have a one pound coin. And I never noticed this before. I picked it up the other day and I looked, this is an English pound. I looked around the rim, the outside of it, and it has this saying in Latin, and I don't speak Latin very well. It says, Decus et tutamen. And for those of you who know Latin, that means. No one. Okay, good. Not the only one. It means an ornament and a safeguard. The idea is that the sovereign, that is the picture of the queen that sits on the shears, and this is an ornament of her, and she is your safeguard. And whenever you carry the coin around with you, it is a reminder that she is your protection and she is your safeguard. And in a similar way, when you trust in Jesus' authenticated power, when he is the one that you rest your hope in, then that will be the one, the safeguard for your life. Finally, what is a protection from false teaching? Not allowing your faith to be distorted. So Jesus, I think, goes from being a little bit frustrated with the disciples to perhaps even being exasperated with them. We see this. He really calls them out. He says, you're not perceiving. He says, you're not remembering. And he says, you're failing to understand. That's a bit of straight talk from Jesus to the disciples. Because they're arguing about, you know, they don't have any bread. And Jesus is like, have you not seen the miracles? I can turn stones into bread. I can do anything. Why are you worried about bread when you have me with you? But I want you to notice something in the midst of that, is that Jesus persists with them. Something that should guard your faith, that, should, that will not allow it to be distorted, is that Jesus will persist with you. That even if you keep messing it up, even if you keep not perceiving, not remembering and failing to understand, Jesus will stick by you. But we must be careful. We must see the signs. We must beware. The idea of when Jesus said, watch and beware, is see the signs, but do something about it. And as we think about doing something about it and how we can be protected from false teaching and not allow our faith to be distorted, there is something that will really help you to keep on track with Jesus. And it was actually, uh, I think I read this somewhere. They did an interview with pastors who committed adultery, which you know, doesn't sound, sound right, but, and it does happen, and it's a terrible thing. But they interviewed all these pastors who committed adultery, and they said there was three common denominators amongst all of them. The first one was that they, they never thought it would happen to them. They never thought it would happen to them. The second one is that they started spending more time with another woman than their wife. The third one was that they stopped practicing private devotion. There were common denominators among these thousand pastors, which is a terrible thing, who had committed adultery. In the same way, and Jesus picks up on the theme of adultery, so I think it applies here, don't think it will never happen to you that you will get caught up in false teaching. Keep your guard up against getting distorted. Don't be ignorant of the danger. Don't see the signs like the mouse crawling over the mousetrap every day. Deal with it. Get out of there. Don't let it distort you. Secondly, don't spend more time outside the word of God and researching red herrings than knowing Jesus through the Bible. This is a problem. 
I know too many people that are obsessed about stuff that really doesn't matter. We, we like going down the rabbit hole. The rabbit hole doesn't go anywhere good. Now, some people can be professors in all the obscurities. That's fine for them. But for you, stick to the important things. Stick to the word. Stick to things that we can know. Speculate on speculative things. I can't even say that properly. But leave it there. Hold firm to things that are most important. And finally, don't stop practicing private devotion. Because clinging to Jesus, drawing near to him, having private time of prayer will keep you on track. Okay, I'm going to pray. And uh, just for the sake of time, uh, we're going to finish with our last song. So let me pray. Father, we want to thank you, uh, Lord, for your grace to us. Uh, We want to thank you for teaching us uh, through your word that you love us, uh, that you will persist with us, that even when, uh, Lord Jesus, uh, we get caught up on the wrong path, that like you did to Jonah and like you did to the Ninevites, you reach out your hands of grace. And Lord, I pray you would do the same to us this morning, that we would have repentant hearts towards you. And so we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.